So as for your patience this morning, we're continuing or trying to continue the um, work that was going on as we were going through the, the confession of the church in the 1689. And so this morning's topic would bring us to chapter 11, justification by faith. And uh, in some ways, this topic is a very foundational topic, and so we would think that shouldn't be too intimidating, but in other ways, due to its just foundational nature to what it is to be a Christian, it is, it is intimidating. Um, we want to do well and explain it well and worship through it. So I want to begin by opening to Romans chapter 3. So if you're finding Romans chapter 3, I'm also going to kind of lay out where we're going. <clears throat> Essentially, when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith, if we rightly understand our condition before God and the problem that we're in, that goes a long way towards understanding what it is that God must provide in justification for it truly to be a free gift of righteousness to us. That is to say, if we, if we misunderstand our condition before God, if we think we are perhaps in need of a second chance or in need of um, some help along the way and not actually in need of full atonement, we may think that God has provided something other than what his word says in justification. But God says that justification is a declarative act of God whereby he makes a sinner, the whole person, right before God. And so we want to look first at what is the requirement of us before God. That is, how does God view us as we are born naturally in Adam? And so in Romans chapter 3, Paul has been endeavoring to, to show this. And so we come to verses, to verses 9. I'm going to start in verse 9. And we'll read through verse 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the, no, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we're starting here at verse 19, and I wanted to start here because in this picture we get an idea of what Paul is talking about when he says law. Notice first at the end, he says through the law comes knowledge of sin. So whatever this law Paul is talking about is, this law is how we understand what sin is. This is what God has set forth as required of his creatures in creation. He also says, what, what, who does the law speak to? Well, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. So while the law, as given in the Ten Commandments, did have a particular 
a covenantal relationship to the people of Israel, we understand that when Paul here is speaking of being guilty before the law, he is speaking of something broader, something more universal than merely what is given to the Jews. He is speaking to that which condemns both Jews and Greeks, as we saw in verse 9. So this law is God's universal standard for what sin is. And what does this law require of us? Well, it requires of us righteousness. And what does it speak to us? It speaks, what does it say? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is, the law stands to tell us that no one is righteous, not even one. What is what we know from Romans 6.23, what, is the wa- what are the wages of sin? Death. So under this law, what do we all deserve? We deserve death. But not only that, what do we know from James? James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all, right? So the law is one because God is one. The law is of his righteousness, And though we stumble in even one point, we are guilty before the whole thing. So what this is saying is, if we're to have right standing with God and to have eternal life, we're not just looking for God to give a second chance. That is, your sin is pardoned, now you can try again. That would put us in no situation any better than what Adam had in the garden. But to us, God has promised eternal life forever. God has said, you will not, no one can pluck you out of my hand, right? And so, what do we need from God in justification? Well, we need two things. Not only do we need forgiveness of sins, but we need his righteousness. We need his righteousness to be our righteousness, so that God might accept us, not just as, un, un, not just as innocent, but as righteous before him, as having kept what he gave us to keep in his law. And this is the matter of justification. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read chapter, paragraph one, I'm sorry, from the confession, so that we can just hear how Baptists of old summarized this doctrine as they understood it. And we'll look to scripture to, to lay this out. So in paragraph one it says, those whom God effectually calls he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is a gift of God. And so, if this is true, we ought to be able to see this from Scripture. We ought to be able to see that God has provided for us all that is needed for salvation, that salvation through justification is truly wholly a free gift, not just a partial gift. And so, in this, we must ask not only what is the requirement under the law, 
but what is, what is the necessity of justification? What do I need, right? We don't need God to give us a second chance. We need God to declare that we are righteous before him because we are sinners and because we cannot keep the law on our own. But then we must ask, what kind of a God is God? If I'm a sinner, if I truly am guilty before God's law, what kind of a judge is God if he would declare me innocent, though I am guilty, and declare me righteous, though I'm sinful? Would that make God an unrighteous judge? What is, what is the ground for him to justify us? On what grounds can he declare us righteous? If he just does this willy-nilly, is God truly a righteous judge? Let's turn to Psalm chapter 50, and I'm going to, we're going to talk about how, we're going to see, rather, what kind of a judge God is. So we're going to compare two places, Psalm 19 and Psalm 51. You can put your finger in either one. I think I might have misspoke. Psalm 50 is where I'm aiming at. Psalm 50 and Psalm 19. Starting in Psalm 50 in verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So in Psalm 50, God, the judge, is compared to the Son, Coming out, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. As clear as the sun comes up and shines light on all the earth, so clear is God a righteous judge to the earth. Compare Psalm 119. You'll see this drawn out even more. Psalm 1, I'm sorry, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are their words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you get the analogy there? Just as the sun comes up and for its sheer joy goes its full course throughout the sky and lands to the other end and nothing stops it and nothing is hidden from its heat, it shines on the whole earth, so is the law of God and the brightness of God's law. Nothing is hidden from his law. So is this judge of God. He is a righteous judge. Nothing is hidden from his heat. He is a tempest and he does what is right. So we must really come to think, what is the basis for God to declare me righteous? 
How is it that God can do this? Because I know that God is a righteous God and he would not clear the innocent or declare the guilty to be right if he had not a basis for this. And so we come to the grand truth of justification, that this basis is Christ alone and Christ's righteousness alone. It is by Christ alone that we know that God is both just and the justifier. Let's look back to Romans 3 again. Romans 3, continuing on, we we stopped at verse 20, so now starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This last section is very important. As we think about the Old Testament, there's a, there's a tension that is there throughout the entirety of it. That is, right from the garden, God had pledged death to Adam if he sinned. And indeed, death did come to Adam. But God graciously gave him many days to live afterwards. Was God unjust to do that? What about with David when he sinned with Bathsheba? Who, was, who did David think God was that God would forgive him of this sin? By what basis would David be forgiven? Or any other sinner of the Old Testament? There's a, there's a contradiction. Is God unjust? Is God unjust? And this is why Paul says he, God was forbore with, forbore with those sins. That is, he passed over the former sins so that at the present time, he's talking about when Christ came, he might show himself to be both just and the justifier that he might resolve that tension that was laid down in the Old Testament. That is, because Christ was a perfect man, a perfect son, the perfect Son of God, because he perfectly kept God's requirement for humanity, and because in spite of that, he bore the sin on the cross and died under it, we see that God has a true basis for declaring those who are guilty righteous. If the guilty can be united with my son, who took all the penalty and curse of the law upon him, then they are also freely declared righteous before God. And so, this is the great truth of justification by faith. That is, it must be solely a free gift of God. It must be given and protected as such. And this is really the wording, why the wording of the confession goes on to talk about that, is primarily to protect justification by faith. It's, it's very easy for us naturally to say, okay, well, it's by faith. God requires faith of me. Therefore, I will conjure up faith. I will do faith. I will turn faith into something that earns me justification with God. But this is not correct. We know that faith itself is a gift. If I can give a human illustration that maybe will help for a little bit. If someone says, free ice cream, but you got to come and get it, it matters a lot whether that free ice cream is in California or if it's in the back fellowship hall, right? 
because you realize there's actually a, there's a cost here. I'm going to have to pay for gas or whatever to get there and get it. Well, if faith is like that conduit which connects us to Christ's grace, faith itself must be a gift of God. That is to say, God, cannot, God does not require of us faith that he does not also provide for us. It's much The promise of, of salvation in God is much more like saying, again, bear with the analogy, free ice cream and free transportation, free to all. If you will believe, right? If you will come, there is free grace. And so God does provide that faith and provide that righteousness to his people. And we can see this in many places. What does, what does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or we might think of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And this is, this is the text which is cited by the, by the confession as, just, as, um, as grounding this principle. Romans chapter 5, and starting in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace, has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience will the many be made righteous. The point here is to say that the free gift of God is given which brings salvation, that it is truly a free gift. And if we truly believe it is a free gift, then it is not of works. We'll, we'll continue on. Our, our main text today is, is chapter 3, right? So we'll continue on in chapter 3. In 27 is where we left off. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And this brings us to a particular point. When God set forth the terms of salvation, he made it in such a way that not a man who is saved in Jesus has a single ground to boast of in himself. To put it another way, if God, had, if God in salvation was saying, I forgive your sins, and then I'm going to give to you, you know, a supernatural ability to then keep my law, and it's by your keeping of the law of works that you're going to be saved, then you would say, well, I have some participation with God in this work. God forgave me, and I kept the law then afterwards. Or if we say, even if we say God particularly gave me a, a strong faith, a strong enough faith to hold on to him, then maybe we would boast and say, I have kept God's requirement. But particularly, Paul is saying, where is boasting? It is excluded. God particularly did not want that any of his people would be saved and boast. It is for his glory that he does save us. 
And so we come to realize that even the faith is a gift. And as the, uh, as the confession says, we must be careful even then how we think about it. Are we to think, as um, often is the case in, in, in Catholic situations where faith or, or righteousness is directly infused into you so that you become a righteous person and therefore are justified on the basis of that infused righteousness to you? No, it is God, Christ's righteousness alone which stands for your righteousness, not your righteousness. Does God then give you faith immediately in terms of has he given you a, um, a supernatural ability to hold on to him? No, he has given you the Holy Spirit as a free gift, as, as a um, consequence of justification that you might hold on to him through his spirit. And so this is, this is the language that, though it seems like you're, we're parsing words when he says, um, they, uh, by imputing Christ, I'm sorry, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but imputing Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience unto his death. That is to say, regardless of what requirement you can set up as an evangelical obedience, whether you make faith an obedience or you make keeping the law of God an obedience, regardless of what it is, this is not the basis for what, how we are justified. We are justified by Christ's obedience and by his keeping the law of his being the perfect and faithful Savior of his people. Any questions or comments? I ran through that fairly quickly. It's certainly a topic that will never be exhausted. How about... What sort, of, what sort of analogies does the Bible itself give us of justification? Ways in which we can understand that. Yes? Ah, uh, yeah. So it's like, it's like clothing, right? It's, been, it's like being clothed in something else that wasn't ours. Yep, that's and, right. And he was clothed for a time in our sin. Yes. Here's one. How about geography? I was some something I was reading last night was listing all the different analogies to justification, and there are geography. And I had to think for a minute. Psalm: For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Right. So there's, what about washing, right? We're washed, we are cleansed in his blood. There's, there's a whole host of analogies that the Bible gives us that we can ponder on and think about justification and learn in. Um, and it's very kind of God to, to give us these things for small brains like ours to understand higher truths of God and his kindness toward us. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness in justifying us freely by your grace. Lord, may we never, never boast. You have excluded it. And Lord, it is for our good that you have excluded it. We would, if we had any grounds to boast in our salvation, we would. And yet, 
It is for our benefit and for your glory. As those two things meet together in the gospel truth that you have done this freely of your own will, not in any constrained way, not because of our pleas, but because you sovereignly chose to save. We praise you for this truth, and we do thank you for many other godly Christian men who have gone before us, who stand in your word and see the truths that are there and help to, uh, to preach them to us and make them more clear that we might um, understand, as Paul says, as he says, uh, he prays that God would um, make his words clear, which is how he ought to speak. And so these, these men of old preach, as it were, to us, making clear what is in some ways, um, in some ways difficult to understand. We thank you. Amen.